Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by an old friend, Tim McIntosh. You know Tim. Tim, say hello to the people. Hi, people. <laughs> and then a new friend, Sarah <laughs> That caught me off guard. Sorry, David. It caught me off guard. <laughs> I know. I, I changed it up. I mixed it up on you. I know you did. And then we have a new friend who's joining us and her name is Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, welcome to The Plays The Thing. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here on the podcast. Sarah Jane is a teacher at Eton in England and is very knowledgeable about Shakespeare and has become a friend of the Kern family and Cersei in general. And I was chatting with her about Shakespeare and various other literary things. And I thought to myself, Sarah Jane needs to come on the podcast. And we needed to fill in you know, some people here on the plays of thing. And she seemed like the ideal fit. So you know, we, we made her do it. And she has uh, stooped and acquiesced <laughs> to joining us on the show. So again, thanks for being here. We're here to discuss Othello. I like um, how you kind of set me up there, super knowledgeable. And then you gave me the backhanded compliment of being the fill-in as well. So, <laughs> I, know, I noticed that also. It's, uh, it's, um, see... Like the play Othello, it's all about paradox, right? Okay. Nicely <laughs> <laughs> done. Um, we are here to discuss Othello. We're going to discuss Act 1. We're going to get into um, some higher level things about the play before we dive into as much as we can of these first three scenes here in Act 1. I want to remind you about all the different ways you can get in touch with us. You can, of course, join the conversation over on the Facebook group. Uh, the Close Reads Podcast group is the name of that group. So you can just search that if you have not joined that already. As always, there will be plenty of discussion going on about this play. If you're not listening to the uh, Close Reads flagship show, um, you should be doing that because we are discussing the Odyssey. We're going to be discussing books 9 and 10 this week. Of course, we have the Daily Poem and everything else is going on here on the, on the Close Reads Podcast Network. If you want to join us on social media, you can follow at Close Reads Pods on Instagram and on Twitter. And finally, we have the Close Reads newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. That's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K for Substack. So closereads.substack.com. And that's where you can... you know, We'll send out information on what we're up to, schedules, some, some resources that we might have to go along with the books uh, that we're reading. So there's plenty of ways to stay in touch and be connected. Hope you will participate in the conversation. Okay, Othello. Let's just start with this. Tim, you mentioned in particular, oh, maybe six or eight months, and I don't remember if you even mentioned this, but you mentioned to me that you really enjoy this play and that you really enjoy the performative nature of this play. And so we, you know, and then you even indicated that you really wanted to be on this, uh, on this series. And I was wondering where your first experience with Othello was like did you see it on the stage first did you read it in school first did you watch one of the movies or something i saw the lawrence fishburne movie when it came out in cinemas in the mid 90s which i look back at the date that it came out and i think it was 1995 maybe it was a little bit later than that and it kind of surprised me that i would go see othello 
just one year after college because I did not care much for Shakespeare at all, and I was not much. Oh, of, really? I, I, I did. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know much about Shakespeare, and I. But I remember going to see the movie, and I remember being crushed at the end of it. Mm. And the funny thing is, in preparation for the podcast, I went back and I rewatched the Lawrence Fishburne version, and I can't watch the end. It's it's so awful for me. Mm. It's awful for everyone. The ending of this play is just so brutal. So did that take you immediately into uh, reading it, or did you read it some years later? I think I read it some years later. Okay. But honestly, I think part of the reason that I wanted to be on the Othello podcast is, of course, I love Shakespeare, but also because this is one of the first times that Shakespeare just really kind of got to me on a really visceral level. Mm. So in reading it, when you finally got around to reading it, did you find that you were kind of oh scared or um, nervous? To yes. The end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I rewatched it and I... I turned it off like with 15 minutes left. Mm. I just can't mm. do it. I mean, so, I'm going to have to do Can it. you read the end? Can yeah, I can read it? the end, okay. but for okay. some reason, I, I think that the movie is, it's very well done. It's very, sh- it's clipped a lot. Of, it's probably two hours long. I don't know if, if you guys have seen it, but I suspect they cut 50% of the text, if not more, okay. which is fine. It's a movie. It's been it a long time since I watched that one. I've yeah. never actually seen it as a film. I've oh, really? Yeah, I've only seen it in the theatre. Hmm. Where did you first encounter Othello? I think it was on a school trip to London and that we saw it at the Barbican. Okay. But my mother was insisting that my school never took us on a trip to London. So it might have been somewhere like Bristol. But I'm pretty sure it was the Barbican. Okay. And then um, later on, I saw, I saw it at the Trafalgar Studios with Lenny Henry as mm. Othello, which was a really interesting casting because he's a very famous comedian. Huh. So this was a, a publicly famous comedian playing the tragic role of Othello. Um, and then since, yeah, it was on quite recently here as a school play as well, which was excellent. Mm. Okay, so I want to kind of hold on to that idea of a comedian playing this character um, as, because there does seem to be some characteristics of Shakespeare's comedies that are kind of layered throughout this play and maybe we can talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But did mm-hmm. they play it as a really serious thing or did they draw on his comedic uh, chops, so to speak, to kind of draw out some of the comedy of the play? Did they play it as a dark comedy? Did they bring any comedy in or any levity at all? Or did he play it totally seriously? I think you have to play Othello, the character, as totally serious. The comedy comes in with Iago, probably. Yeah. But, and with the kind of, the, the generic structures that Shakespeare's using. But the idea of um, a jealous husband as a character is a comic figure, but part of the comedy is that he doesn't realize that mm. he's unreasonable, I suppose. Mm. So n- now that I've given you the floor, <laughs> I had said that um, I was going to have you introduce yourself a little bit. So let's, okay. <laughs> let's let people have some context for who you are now that we're into the conversation a little bit, because I want to use that as a bridge into the next question I have. So tell people who you are, what you do. I mentioned that your name is Sarah Jane Bentley and you teach at Eaton. <laughs> so far, we know that much. I mean, there isn't a lot more to know, really. I, yeah, I'm a school teacher. <laughs> I've really been teaching for about 10 years or so. In, um, taught in mostly in, in an all-boys school, but I've also taught in an all-girls school and a little bit in schools of boys and girls, but all um, sort of older children, 13 to 18 years old. Okay. Um, Sarah Jean, your discipline is Shakespeare specifically? It's literature more broadly? Yes, it's, it's definitely broad. I mean... I did an English degree at Oxford, so I studied a lot of Shakespeare, and um, I've I've kind of continued to study because it's it's necessary as a teacher. So every time um, a new text comes up to be taught on the syllabus, then I will intensively study that for maybe a few months, and then teach it for a year, perhaps. And so over the years, I've kind of started to get to know the plays a bit better, just because I have the luxury of revisiting them all the time. Mm. Yeah. and talking to young people about them. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I'm, you know, a scholar or an expert on Shakespeare at all. Well, perfect. Then you fit in well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, the reason I wanted to ask you that now is because you mentioned that you're teaching these with young people. And Tim, you have taught Shakespeare on the college level. And I was wondering yeah. where this play for your students 
I guess how they respond to it and where it seems to fit in in terms of their, you know, like if you're asking your students what their Mount Rushmore of Shakespeare plays, um, although maybe that's too a, a, an American reference that we should uh, we should avoid with an English person on the show. Um, <laughs> where does this play seem to fall? Because I was thinking about this, and when you talk to people about Shakespeare, it seems to fall sort of in that second tier for a lot of people. You know, maybe the Lear and Hamlet, and then the Tempest or whatever. There seems to be a certain grouping of plays that often gets mentioned. Macbeth, for example. Does that hold true for your students? Sarah Jenna lets you answer that. What do they generally think of this play? Do they like it? Does it are they afraid of it like Tim is? Are they afraid of it? Um, I think it has a different sort of resonance, perhaps, to something like Macbeth, Leo, mm-hmm. Coriolanus, Antony and Cleopatra, which he hadn't ri- Shakespeare hadn't written yet by the time this play was out there. It's because we're not dealing with a tragedy of, of a king or mm. you know, Othello's a general. And he's yeah. a more. So I think sometimes it does take a little bit more effort to say to the boys, no, this is this is a tragedy that really is significant and really matters. Um, because even if it's more kind of domestic, if you like. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So so teaching in a country where um the idea of a king is something that is much more a part of your everyday life, I suppose, or, or your sort of cultural consciousness than it is here, obviously. Does does that then, do you think that that might impact your students more than like the fact that it's not about a king or, or the questions of kingship or succession or something like that? Mm-hmm. Do you think that that might be something that is makes it less meaningful to them than, you know, in a way that maybe doesn't impact, say, Tim's students? No, I, I don't think it makes it less meaningful. I just think it that they perhaps are a little bit more aware that it is um, different perhaps mm. to some of the other major tragedies. Yeah. So maybe the other plays become meaningful in that way more than they would for Tim's students because of the question of kingship is not as relevant to their students. Maybe this is just, maybe I'm talking about something that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> no, David, David, the question you're asking at least makes sense to me. It makes yeah. sense to me because I, I, I feel like... Um, when I read Shakespeare's plays and I read about, let's say the history plays, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know the Kings of England in the same way that I would think that Sarah Jane and Sarah Jane's students know the Kings of England. Yeah. That's kind of what's at the root of your question. Right, David? Yeah. I kind of think of like what sort of, we have these instinctive responses to, Mm -hmm. to plays and to stories and, you know, Tim, you mentioned that when you first saw Othello for the first time, you had this really deeply emotional, instinctive sort of response to the ending. And sometimes those instinctive responses color things in ways that we don't anticipate or that maybe we don't anticipate our students um, having. I, the sentence I just said doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I see. I see, I see. Um, and so I was thinking, I was kind of wondering, like, instinctively, is there something about this play that keeps it sort of from being one of the plays that most people love the most, or does it just not get read as, as much? I don't, I don't know. Is it part of your syllabus every year at, at Eton, Sarah Jane? No, no. And the syllabus um, is probably uh, much more kind of general across the country as a whole in that, you know, it depends because we do public exams here, which you oh, don't sure. in the States. It's more to do with which exam board you choose basically. Okay. Okay. So it's not, it's not a kind of personal choice of the school to teach this text. It's yeah. But it's, it's sometimes there as a choice and it's a popular one, definitely. Um, I think it probably goes quite well with The Merchant of Venice as a slightly, uh, not a problematic play, but kind of... Right. It's not right. your typical big tragedy, if you know what I mean. And I, yeah. I think yeah. it's... I have never taught this play um, and it's never been a part of a mandatory curriculum that I've ever taught. And I've never seen live public performance of Othello. And to be honest, mm-hmm. aside from in Ashland, so so Sarah Jane, I used to live in Eugene, Oregon, which is about four hours north of Ashland, Oregon. And Ashland, Oregon is kind of in the middle of nowhere. But right. I don't know, 50 years ago, they started a Shakespeare festival. And I think it's, it's absolutely world class. Mm-hmm. They've done Othello. And I've known that they've done Othello. I've just never made it down there to see it. So I've never seen a live performance of Othello. And I think that part of the reason why is because it's not performed very frequently outside of really, I think, large and well-established 
theaters in the United States that right. do focus a lot on Shakespeare because of the racial, I'm not even say overtones, because the racial content of mm. the subject matter, which especially, I mean, both in England and the United States is so complicated. And I think that a lot of theaters mm. are probably a little bit afraid of it. Yeah. And I really, um, I get what you're saying as well about, you know, if you're watching it as a film, how intense it is and how difficult it is to watch the ending. Well, if you can imagine in the theatre what that's uh, like, it's, it's so relentless, this play, the build up to the, the inevitable climax. And um, hmm. yeah, I could, you know, it, it, is, it is painful to watch. Maybe that's another reason why people don't like to perform it or put it on. Yeah, I like that you use the word relentless, though, because I was thinking about how much the relentlessness of it makes it, um, well, perhaps not enjoyable to read. Maybe that's the wrong word. It certainly makes it very readable. You know, we're dropped right into it, right in the middle from the first line. Shakespeare and these characters are not beating around the bush, so to speak. I mean, they, we die, we're thrown right into it. Um, yeah. And even though these, you know, act one is not necessarily short, these three scenes are not necessarily short in and of themselves, they're very readable because there is this relentlessness to it. I like that word a lot. I hadn't thought of that word previously. Um, mm. I was thinking about how even in these, this first act, there's different verse forms that Shakespeare's using. You know, like you see when Iago and Rodrigo are scheming, what is that, an act? Scene three, maybe? The, the, the structure of the language changes. And then you have yeah. Othello seems to speak in a way that's different than the other characters in the play, um, mm-hmm. maybe even different, differently yes. than the other characters in most Shakespeare plays. He's horribly stuffed with epithets of war. Is what <laughs> mm. Yeah. And, and do you, so do you think that that is what is causing the relentlessness? I mean, is it the, is it the, the variety of language, the epithets of war, the, or, or is it plot? I, I'm try, I guess I'm trying to figure out, is, there, is it just that we're thrown into the chaos of the story and the sort of mm. hatefulness of it? Or is, is it more of a formal thing that Shakespeare is doing with the language and perhaps even the structure? I mean, I know you'd like to talk about the structure of these three scenes, so maybe this is a good time to do that. But I'm mm. wondering if, maybe is this question of relentlessness a good way into that conversation? I'm, I'm also interested to hear what Tim thinks as well. But I, to, to start on that, I'd say that um, the plotting really is the big driver of the tension. Um, and obviously Yago's the, the kind of dynamic behind that plotting. He seems to over-orchestrate everything and ha- have more control than he ought to have as the mere ancient. Um, the language itself, you're right, does shift between prose, it shifts between verse in, in Act 1, Scene 3. We have the Doge of Venice speaking in um, rhyming couplets, which is even more formal perhaps than we're used to. Mm. And there are moments in the play where there can be a release of tension by a shift into prose, but then equally, you know, at a really tense moment, like when Othello is completely broken down, he's having a fit. The thing that's so relentless there is that he's lost this ability to speak with such eloquence. So I think Shakespeare treats the form of the poetry um, in accordance with the drama that's happening at, the, at that time in the scene. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule about it. Does that kind of make sense, do you think? It does. Yeah. Tim, go ahead. Othello struck me. There's a line, I can't remember it exactly, where Othello says that um, he's not terribly eloquent. And that line yeah. is surrounded by all of this eloquence. And it reminded me of the beginning of um, Mark Antony's speech. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When he's, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> he's not an eloquent man, he says. And then he comes out with one of the most beautiful speeches in the English language. And Othello strikes me the same way. But I, I picked mm-hmm. up on the exact same thing, Sarah Jane, that you picked up on. The metaphors are so militaristic. And I think, I think part of the power, and we, we don't even get to know, we have not met Desdemona except by reputation. But when she finally steps out on stage, I kind of had this sense, here is this powerful general whose mindset is bent completely on war making and establishing victory. It's part of the reason why he's so valuable in this context to these people. Mm-hmm. How is this going to work? When, how is this going to work between the two of them when his mind is so full of arms and so full of weaponry? You know, like I think even on a subconscious sort of level, 
there's a sense that um, Doom may be riding up on its very well armored horse before yes. Desdemona even even arrives on the stage. Do you know that painting by Botticelli of Mars and Venus? Oh, where... yeah, when, when Venus is taking the armor off of Mars. Yes, yeah, yes. exactly. That's what should happen, right? That Mars should submit to Venus, that, that love should conquer war. And when we find out in the beginning about how Desdemona has been wooed by Othello, it's not the right way around. Othello hasn't, hasn't fallen for her. She's fallen for him. And his exploits. And his exploits, yes. And, um, and this is kind of the problem, as you say, that you can see from the beginning, there's, there's a kind of doom here that, that Mars never takes his armor off. Yeah. I was thinking about how that scene where Desdemona's father brings this case against him and is sort of enraged. And on the one hand, it's this question of, this is not the kind of person she should, she should be with. You know, it's kind of a prejudicial take, right? Hmm. And so I was wondering if, is Shakespeare, on, on the one hand, there is this sort of, as Tim said, it's not even an undertone, right? Or, or it's just, it, the racist stuff is all right there, right? Um, and so on the one hand, there's this very prejudiced way that he is looking at Othello and the reasons that he doesn't want his daughter to, to be with Othello. But then on the other hand, is there any, well, I think one of the questions is, is there any justice in his complaint if you take out just the racist aspect of it? Like, is he wrong yeah. to not want Desdemona to be with Othello given who Othello is as a person and the reasons that she fell for him? So if you take, I think that's one of the things that complicates the play and the character of Othello in some ways. Because mm. on the one hand, especially to a contemporary reader, the race question is sort of despicable, right? On the other hand, it's though... Go so ahead. front and center. It, it, it's so front and center that it might overwhelm... This is what I hear you saying, David. It might overwhelm any other reasons why Desdemona and Othello might actually not be a good match in other ways, like the ones that Sarah Jane and I were just talking about. Is, right. That's, where you're, right. that's what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's yeah. and then, yes, exactly. And so, yeah. is there any justice in the case that the father is making if you take that despicable bit out? Right. Well, it's it's a really great question to ask because it's obviously a question that Shakespeare asks because he gives us a court scene where the Doge of Venice, who is like unbelievably high status, hears the case before he even discusses the matter of the war in Cyprus. Yeah, and yeah. he clearly doesn't think it's unjust. And, and the other question that we have to ask Brabantio is, well, how did Desdemona come to hear this story of Othello's? Like, how, why was Othello in your house? <laughs> and obviously yeah. the answer is because Brabantio had invited him in. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. What did you guys, I just want to read a couple of lines and know what you, what you thought of these. So the Duke exiting after the court scene has been resolved. Where, where are you? What, in Desimo's father, this is three. Line for me, 289 and 290. Uh, so he says, Good night to everyone and noble senor. If virtue no delighted beauty lack, your son-in-law is more fair than black. Hmm. I thought, it's a complicated couple lines. <laughs> and I, I, think it's, I think it's intended to be a compliment to um, Othello, and it's meant to assuage the father's concerns. But what a peculiar way of saying it. Yeah, it's appealing to Brabantio, I, I think, to, to recognize the virtue of Othello, which the Duke is saying is is greater than his visible appearance. That, that his nobility yes. kind of shines forth, if you like. Um, and that's, that's yes. one of the problems for Othello, I think, that's so difficult. As, as you were saying, that he's kind of obsessed with war, and it's almost that he has to be, because he's trying to be more Venetian than the Venetians. He's got to be <laughs> mm. virtuously whiter than they are, if you like. Yeah. Sarah Beth, I wanted to ask this question. Um, and maybe now is the time. What would Shakespeare's audience have thought when they saw a Moor on stage? Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really fascinating question. I don't think there's a 
a straightforward answer in the same way that when we go to the theatre now, not everyone has the same response to the entry of a particular character. But there was, um, in the time of Elizabeth, towards the end of her reign, about 1600, I think, there was um, an ambassador from... um, from Arabia, so the Barbary ambassador who, who was called Abd el-Wahid ben Masood, who came into court very publicly and, and lots of people would have seen him. And um, there's a painting of him actually that you can, you can find on the internet. And so I don't think the idea of a noble Moor would have been alien to the audience, something that they, they would have seen uh-huh. and it's certainly something that Shakespeare would have seen himself. Um, so then the really interesting question about Othello's race is, do we think that he is a more in the sense of being an Arab? Is he Barbary? Or is he a sub-Saharan mm. African, as some of the more racist taunts that are hurled at him suggest, like Rodrigo mm. calls him thick lips, for example. Um, mm. And so it's quite difficult in the play to, to really answer that question because a lot of things um, suggest that he's maybe a converted Muslim. So he has a kind of Ottoman background. But then there are these references to him being black as opposed to tawny, which is the word used to describe the Prince of Morocco in The Merchant of Venice, for example. So there's an right. ambiguity there. Well, and it's complicated by the, the actor factor, isn't it? I mean, didn't yeah. Richard, Richard, was it Richard Burbage would have played him? Yeah, it would have been definitely... He would not have been... No. <laughs> he would not have been as dark as... And he, would he have been even... Tawny to use that would would he have been like that or how would they have approached that I mean or was he I mean he, he they wouldn't have done like a what we would call blackface today would they Yes I think they would yeah So do you which do you do you know anything about what they would have done in Shakespeare's day to to transform Richard Burbage do or what they did do you know anything Well there would have been I imagine quite a realistic costume because a lot of the costumes were donated to them by the nobility um and Shakespeare's company of players at this time were doing really well. They just progressed from being the Lord Chamberlain's men to the King's men. Um, so this is the first play, I think, that Shakespeare writes for King James I. Um, and so, yeah, I imagine the character of Othello would be a spectacle and that he would need to look exotic. Would they have been able to do that? Or I guess, how would they have done that without making it seem comic? Would do you think that would have been an issue? I guess is maybe. I mean, maybe you don't know the well, mechanics of it, but I don't know. I mean, this, you could say the same thing. Would would male actors dressing up as women have been seen as yeah, comic? I I don't really think it would have mm. necessarily. Suspension of disbelief and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah why not? Um, I I read a quote by Laurence Olivier, in which he imagined Burbage saying to Shakespeare that you know, hey, Bill, I can play anything you want me to play. <laughs> and then Shakespeare wrote Othello <laughs> to kind of like say, oh, right, okay, I'll fix you. Let's see this. Yeah. Was this, what, what was the response to this play uh, when it was first performed? Do, do you know? Well, there they were various responses, but there's one particular critic called um, Reimer who really hated it. He called it the tragedy of a handkerchief. He thought that it was ridiculous, that it was a farce. So... Um, uh, there was some rejection of it as a tragedy at all because the, the, one of the interesting questions about Othello's race is if he's a sort of Arabic Moor, then he has more dignity and nobility in, in the kind of uh, Jacobean sense than he does if this is just the tragedy of a sub-Saharan African. So mm-hmm. there, there was a, a kind of... Well, Reimer at least suggests that as a tragedy, it was it was kind of questioned when it was first on the stage. Well, T.S. Eliot didn't like it, so I guess no, he didn't like it, David. T.S. Eliot, but he also has a reputation for you know picking fights with Shakespeare's greatness. So. <laughs> or at least yeah. he didn't care for the character of Othello. Did you did you feel like the first act was Act Five of a comedy? It felt mm. to me mm. that, um, you know, we have the, the wrongful accusation, which so often happens in the comedies. We have um, the injustice is brought to the light of day, a magistrate. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking especially of something like Measure for Measure. 
a magistrate pronounces justice and it culminates in a marriage. And even though the marriage has happened off stage in Othello, it feels like a marriage scene because there's this kind of like pronouncement that we've made our vows to each other. Hmm. Desdemona says to her father, you know, I, my rightful duty now is with my husband. And it's, so it's funny because it's almost like Othello felt to me like the end of a comedy begins our play and we have these sprinklings of doom throughout the first act and those those seeds of doom slowly grow during two three and four until they finally just take over the entire play in five i love that idea can i put forward a slightly opposite one just for please fun? please please <laughs> so if if we compare othello to 12th night and the tempest going along with this idea that it has a kind of comic overtone, if you like. Mm-hmm. Both mm-hmm. of those plays start with a storm. And Othello, we know, in the next act, is about to go into the storm and on the way to Cyprus. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. It, start, it starts uh, it, it, with a kind of storm and then moves to a, a kind of resolution at the end, whereas normally with tragedy, we'd expect it the other way around. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. It does, it does begin with things seeming to be resolved in this court case presided over by the Doge. And then it all starts to unravel afterwards. Yeah. And yet, even though we know that like, practically speaking, maybe that particular case has been resolved, we know from the very first lines of the play that whatever Brabantio ends up accepting, you know, that he's not really the actual guy that they have to overcome. Brabantio's not really the the villain or the one who's really going to get in the way of Desdemona and Othello being happy. Um, and and mm. from the very yeah. beginning, you get the, there's this plot against them that then Brabantio kind of gets wrapped up in, but then the resolution's not really a resolution. It's just um, almost that getting resolved is the thing that pushes the, the plot of Iago and Rodrigo into you know the next level of action. Well, there's a great haste to resolve it, isn't there? Because yeah, essentially true, true. The, the Doge is like, I need to get this domestic squabble um, out of the way because We've what I really talk to Othello about is Cyprus. Yeah. Um, and I love yeah. the way that, that um, Brabantio kind of dismisses all these proverbial bits of wisdom of the Doge by saying, you know, um, so let the Turk of Cyprus us beguile. We lose it not so long as we can smile because he's just been told by by the doge, you know, um, if you if you can smile at your robber, then you haven't really lost anything. Mm. Rabanju says, "Yeah, okay, well, fine. Let let Cyprus go to the Turks then and smile about it. You know, how, how, why is it any different for you?" <laughs> and so, at the very beginning of the play, we have this um, mixture of the the public political martial scene and the private domestic scene which um, you're right, doesn't, doesn't really get resolved. That's kind of the problem, if you like. It's, it's a very, what's the right word? Not pragmatic solution. It's just a solution because the law of marriage has already been enacted and the father is not going to quibble with that, but he's certainly not happy with the match. Mm. But things must go on. We have to send yeah. this great general off to war. Mm. It's, I was thinking there's the... When Othello is telling the story to the Duke and so forth, and he's kind of he's he's kind of explaining how he met Desdemona, he says in uh, one point three, I think it's around one twenty eight. He says her father loved me, often invited me, still questioned me the story of my life from year to year, the battles, sieges, fortunes that I passed, and then he says that he, you know, it's, he says I ran I ran it through, even from my boyish days to the very moment that he bade me tell it, and I was thinking about how. Brabantio is all about Othello when it comes to when it comes to his story. Yeah. Like it's a, it's mm. he's like fascinated by his story. He's fascinated by the adventures that Othello has had and this mm. sort of mysterious soldier and this warrior and the sort of legend of Othello. But then once it comes to him as an actual person falling in love with his daughter, he's not as into that. And it's not that much different, it seems, um, for for the the court, right? Like the Duke and and um the senator are sort of you know, as long as uh, look, all we care about is the ego in the battle. Whatever else doesn't really 
doesn't really matter. They don't, they don't seem to care about him as a person particularly either. They care about him for what they can what he can accomplish for them. What he can right. achieve them, yeah. There's and, a huge hypocrisy here as well, isn't there? That um, one of the things that Brabantia refuses to accept, it seems, initially, is that Desdemona could be wooed by Othello's words. Um, and he says, but words are words. I never yet did hear that the bruised heart was pierced through the ear. And yet he himself was captivated yeah. by yeah. Othello's story. And, right, right, exactly. Yeah. So he's he's sort of a bit deluded or hypocritical there, perhaps. I think this observation by Shakespeare, this this kind of character description of Robontio is Shakespeare at his best because we've mm. all seen this. I, I can't help being from the American South. I can't help but think of the way that African American musicians, for example, were. Mm adored by their audiences, esteemed by their audiences, befriended by their audiences, while at the same time, their audiences were resisting the civil rights movement. So there's this, there's this odd, it's not odd, it's, mm. there's this hypocritical sort of stance mm. that in the area of Othello's skill, his great war-making ability, he is an equal. But not really in the other realms. And there's this ability, you know... Yes, in, he's not a curly darling, like... Uh, right, exactly, exactly. And I, I just see that is not unique to the characters in this play. We've all seen this in our lives, that you, you a, a person or a particular ethnic group can be esteemed for a great skill, but never let them be considered equals in political and cultural rights. And I just think Shakespeare really gets that exactly right in the beginning of this play. And that's perhaps as well why Othello says, rude I am in speech, as if to say, um, you know, I'm not going to deign to present myself here as eloquent, even though he, he is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He has to almost... Mm. make himself, he has to pretend he's humble or be humble to make sure that no one, he doesn't get anyone's bad side. Yeah, he's saying, right. he I'm, not a courtier. I'm not a courtier, I'm a soldier. But yeah. um, I'm just a simple man. I don't know about simple, but he's saying I'm not a rhetorician. Mm. So it, I was thinking a lot when I was reading Tim about Muhammad Ali because oh, really? he had that sort of, you know, people practically worshipped him in the 60s and 70s as a boxer, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. he, he, he was a pretty eloquent, eloquent guy. But then as and soon he as knew he, it, and he was not afraid to yeah, say it. <laughs> exactly. But then as soon as he... Yeah, I guess that's different. But as soon as he took action in some way outside of the ring, whether it was political... Exactly. ...or something with the civil rights, or whether he wanted to just... Someone wanted to do a profile on him as a person, you know, so many people would sort of rejected that because all that he... The only reason he was you know, worth paying attention to is because he was, he could fight really well, you know, he literally was fighting in battles that, that in a way that enchanted people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great comparison. There's um, a, a wonderful essay about this play by G. Wilson Knight, which is called the Othello music. And he looks at the, um, the rare quality of Othello's speech and all these sort of multisyllabic words that he uses. He talks about anthropophagi and worlds <laughs> yeah. made of chrysolite and things like this. And the one thing that Iago says, I think it's in the beginning of Act 2, is that um, he, he's, going to, he's going to make it out of tune. I can't remember the quotation exactly, but it's something about messing with the pegs so that the chords don't sound right anymore. Hmm. And that's one of the tragedies of the play. So then the question, I guess, is at the end, has Othello really lost his music? Because one of the most beautiful speeches of the play is, is that one by Othello at the end where he says, it is the cause, it is the cause. And that's pretty musical. Huh. Huh. What's so, the name of the essay again, Stare Jane? It's called The Othello Music by G. Wilson Knight. Okay. Yeah. There's a... Um, hey, you guys, I feel like we have hardly mentioned a certain character, Iago. I wonder <laughs> I was, if it's because, gonna, it because we're all that. terrified. Terrified of, of Iago? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you should, probably should be, right? When I, I was rereading this, I, he is absolutely... Let me back up. 
Sarah Jane, we did um, the last play that we did was Macbeth, and yes, you know, I listened to we it. See, oh, wonderful! Yeah, we see Macbeth become, you know, the, he becomes sort of demonic. For me, Macbeth is like an adolescent and evil compared to Iago. Iago is so terrifyingly, brilliantly demonic that. He's 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 yeah. hard to explain. Do you agree with that, Sarah Macbeth compared to Iago is is an excellent place to start. I think so. Yeah, I think that yeah. Obviously, at the beginning, Macbeth. Macbeth has the, the the kind of crazy thing about Macbeth is he he knows that God exists and he knows that God is right, mm-hmm. but he says, "Right, stars, put out your fires. Don't look at what I'm doing." And um, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Whereas I, I think what you're saying with Iago is that he has no sense of um, <laughs> the authority of God at all. That, yeah. um, as he yeah. says, the, our wills are gardeners to uh, our desires or something. Let me check In that. one three, you're talking about? Yeah, that he's yeah. sort of totally um, without morals. Yeah, our bodies are our gardens, if- which our wills are gardeners. Hmm. He reminds me of, um, uh, is it, I always confuse, I think it's Edward in Lear. He has a clear agenda. He, like Iago, does not have the power of a king like Macbeth, mm. but he has a very clear intent and he doesn't, he doesn't wrestle with his conscience like you were saying, Sarah Jane. He doesn't wrestle with God's authority. If he ever did that, it happened before this play began. Mm, but we don't see him fall. That's right. He, he doesn't right. ever. He doesn't have any virtues to begin right. with. Yeah. Right. Right. Mean, which is part of the reason for me. It, there's always the possibility. We kept. We kept saying. Um, Heidi especially was really good on this. That when like is there ever a point in Macbeth that Macbeth could have turned back? You know, he's he's steeped in blood so far. He says that he can't turn back. But there's there's various points in the play that he could have turned back. He's already done wrong. They could turn back. Yeah. But he says, I might as well not, doesn't he? He says that, you know, going forward is, is going to be just as hard as going back. So I might as well carry on. Right. Yeah. But with Iago, there's hardly ever, I can't recall a line in the play where he worries (laughs) that what Mm -hmm. he's doing is somehow wrong yeah. the only well, question for him is a strategic decision strategic question yeah. can i get done what i want to get done and get away with it because well, i'd say he's entirely negative his whereas macbeth has has his ambition and and can see a trajectory for that even though it's going to all leap itself and fall on the other and everything uh-huh. is premature for yago he's he's simply so in chaos he does things by means of negation he's a shadow he corrupts things he's like um poisonous acid that bites into bright metal. I think I read one critic said about him. Um, and so he turns beauty into ugliness. But you're right, he doesn't really have any objective beyond that other than to sow discord, disharmony, chaos. So he, he's really um, abhorrent in that sense. Mm. I was thinking that the, one of the big differences between Macbeth and Diago is that Macbeth has some sort of... He's got, you know, he, he could almost blame his turn on someone else in a sense. Mm. You know, there's Lady Macbeth, there's the three sisters, there's all these different sort of external sources, mm. demonic or otherwise, that are, you know, playing on his his will and on his soul and on, you know, offering him temptation and things like that. And mm. that doesn't seem quite as true with Iago. It seems so, um, it seems so, on the one hand, just self-motivated. Calculated, yeah. Yeah, calculated and like sort of internal and core to who he is, almost as if it's he is Macbeth and Lady Macbeth wrapped up in one person. The temptation is not external, it's it's internal. It's you know, it's driven by his I mean, maybe it is just ambition, like you know, the worst version of Macbeth. Which play was written first, by the way? I forget. Um, this one was. Okay. Okay. Othello. So um yeah, he's been described by Coleridge as as uh, having a motiveless malignancy. It's quite a famous sort of Iago. Mm. And I'm not, it might be interesting now just to spend a few minutes thinking about what 
are the things that motivate um, Iago's hatred for Othello, because he says twice at the end of Act 1, Scene 3, I hate them all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and what do you think it is that motivates him, if anything? Can I, I'm going to express a little bit of confusion on this point, because I have heard other commentators say that Iago not as a criticism, but he, he lacks motivation. And yet the play, maybe I misunderstood something, opens with Iago expressing frustration mm-hmm. that Othello gave the position that he felt was rightfully his yeah. to someone else. And to that, Cassio, that strikes to me as... Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and, and that may not be sufficient motive to do what Iago does? Maybe that's the question. Um, but that certainly seems to me like front and center. This is what sets this play off. Iago is, he's, he's hurt. Mm-hmm. But am I, am I, Sarah Jane, am I missing something about the question about what's motivating him? Um, no, no. I, th- I think you've defined the kind of nuances of that really well, which is that is you know is that sufficient motivation? Right. Because the other thing is that later on we find out about his his insecurity um, about his own perhaps his own sexual prowess that he suspects that um, the more has um, jumped in his seat with his wife. He also s- suspects Cassio of that. Mm. Um, so there's that motivation as well. But what's really interesting is if we go back to the source that Shakespeare used for this play, which was written by Giraldo Cinthio in uh, 1565, I think. And Shakespeare probably read this in, in French or Italian or both. Shakespeare creates ambiguity where in the source there was none. So in, in the source, Iago is described as um, the most evil person ever and his motivation is that he is completely in love with Desdemona ah yeah which is it's more kind of it's more believable isn't it as a, as a motivation it is mm. yeah although this but, play does but, seem to, go ahead I was going to say it might be a more believable mo- motivation but that's part of what makes Iago so um, compellingly evil is exactly. that yeah, he's that's so murky yeah, that's why Shakespeare's such a great dramatist, yeah. Yeah, he's so murky. He's so, like, you cannot look inside him and say, well, there it is. That's where it went wrong. That's what his, like, overriding kind of, like, master passion is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. You see what, the way he acts, and it's terrifying because he is so subtle. Mm. And he is so clever in getting what he wants. Yeah. But and you I cannot feel- discern him. I don't want to overgeneralize here because I don't know loads about classical drama, but I think that's one thing that Shakespeare does in the Renaissance in kind of making it more sophisticated, not like one of the medieval morality plays where right. you have your stock figures and you exactly you know right. who's right or wrong, that um, Iago is more human in that sense, in that you know, the sin in our hearts is, is a result of the fall and there isn't really a motive for that. <laughs> We're just... Quite often evil, yeah. In line 64 of 1.1, Iago says, I am not what I am. And I found that really interesting. And it kind of reminded me of, um, is it, who is it in Much Ado where Don John says, I am what I am? Oh, or in in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. What Iago's saying here, I I always read that as a kind of satanic statement. He's saying, I'm the opposite of God. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of, because he's kind of, I mean, on the one hand, it's interesting from a, dramatic standpoint, a characterization standpoint, because it does kind of reveal the complicated nature of this character. But then on the other hand, it, it's such a profound, what, five, le- five words or something. Mm-hmm. I, guess that'd be, I guess that would be six words. <laughs> um, <laughs> he can, he, Shakespeare can do so much in six words, yeah. um, both in characterization and in revealing the themes of the play, as you say there with the, the question of, you know, kind of being anti-God. Um, but then also it reveals, you know, it reveals, there is a sort of self-awareness in Iago that he, you know, he, he says, you know, I, I've, I know what my intentions are, you know, I know that I'm on the one hand, um, not going to, I'm not who I'm going to present myself as. And then, then that reveals to us, the audience, what to look out for. You know? It does, but we, that, but it should also make us really wary because I think one thing Shakespeare does in this play is 
um, maybe even subverts the convention of the soliloquy. So I don't think we can always accept that Diago, even when he's only speaking to us, the audience, is telling the truth. I think he lies to us as much as he does to Othello and everybody else. An, unreli- an early unreliable narrator, eh? Yeah. <laughs> That's just a theory. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so you're saying we shouldn't always trust Iago? No, I, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I say that kind of jokingly, but also on the one hand, you know, that's the thing that's, it's like Shakespeare warning. We should be sitting in our seats yelling at Othello, don't listen to him, don't trust him. Exactly. It does make it like a pantomime. Yeah. Um, we, we have gone close to an hour already. Um, so we should probably start thinking about how we want to wrap up this conversation here. Um, so as we're leading into book three, what do, what do, those of those listeners who are reading along act, with us, act two, David. What did I say? You what said I, book three. Yeah, you might know. be thinking I've got the too many things going. Too many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, thank you for the correction. Yes, as we go into Act Two, <laughs> what what do you what would you say people should be looking out for, and what and what do we need to address before we depart for this week? Tim, I'll hmm. let you jump on that first. Unless I can how first. <laughs> <laughs> no, how Iago is going to do what he's going to do because we conclude Act One with this bond between Othello and Desdemona. Boy, it looks absolutely solid. I mean, maybe from an audience's point of view, like we've mentioned, there are things in Othello's speech that make us think, "Man, this is a war, a warmongering general." who maybe has had very little acquaintance with females. Maybe there's, <laughs> this might be the first romance in his life. As an audience member, we maybe sense that. But still, ostensibly, the plot of the play is that the bond between Othello and Desdemona is really, really strong. Mm. How is Iago going to undo this? Mm. Yeah. Can I go answering that as well? Mm. Yes, please. I think... It's worth recapping quickly the form of the first three scenes. So initially we're given the picture of um, a Venetian woman who elopes without her father's permission. And in that story, Othello is the villain. And that's kind of the story that Iago sets up Mm. at the very beginning. Mm. Then we see um, a second thread of the the story, which is we have this Venetian island, which is under attack from the Turks. And in that story, Othello is the savior. And then they kind of both come together in, in the court scene um, in in scene three, and so now, huh. where we've got Othello with these, these kind of two conflicting roles to play, if you like, we're huh. going to move from Venice to Cyprus, which is a completely different country, and it's such an interesting setting to move to. And I don't know if you've read any Northrop Fry, but he often in comedy talks about the shift to the green world, which is mm-hmm. the world where kind of anything can happen, where fathers are absent, where Usually all these problems happen and then, and then it ends, as you said earlier, with a marriage. Um, as you like, it's the famous example. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to Cyprus, which is, I think, an interesting, perhaps, symbol of Othello himself. It was uh, hotly contested by the Ottoman Empire and what was known as Christendom. So Venice is, is fighting for it for Christendom and, and the Ottomans are trying to maintain it as an Islamic island. And... You, you could see it kind of as analogous to Othello himself, who has mm. made this alliance with Desdemona, who is, is uh, a kind of paragon of Christian virtue. And then you've got Iago working against him, saying, I'm going to kind of make sure that you get unbaptized. Mm. Um, and so I think when we move to Cyprus, it's worth looking at it as a analogous to Othello himself and the battle that's going on, that he himself is a battleground and then the other question wow. I'd be interested in is um, the fact that you've got this kind of deferral, perhaps, of the consummation of their marriage and how that's also frustrated, not just in this, the, the realms of love, but also in the realms of war, that we're anticipating this battle and it doesn't happen. Hmm. I love this, the idea of... Well, that's good. Othello is the battleground. The, even the idea that Cyprus is an island that's kind of, you know, not part of... I mean, I guess technically now we consider it part of what Asia, <laughs> um, but, it, but it's not, you know, it's not really part of any of the places that he might theoretically become from as we were talking about his, his background earlier. 
So it, mm. he's it's kind of out there by itself. What is the closest country to, to Cyprus? Turkey? Oh my gosh, I have to look at the map. Uh, it's 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 part yeah, it's there, isn't it, in the Mediterranean with all the kind of Greek islands. Georgia. Um, <laughs> this isn't this isn't a geography podcast. <laughs> well, I mean seriously any, <laughs> any, any moment. <laughs> You never know what it's going to be, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, you mentioned that you were, um, it might have been off the air, but you, how, how interested you were in the name. So before we go, could you take us through what you were going to say about that? Yes, sure. Um, so Othello's name is interesting in that, uh, in the source, again, Chinfio's story about the Moor. The Moor doesn't have a name at all. So, so Shakespeare gives him a name. Um, and it could, it could be, pronounced more like Otello, which suggests that he's kind of an Ottoman. It sounds a bit like Ottoman. Mm. Or mm. the other idea is that it sounds like Thorello, which is um, a name of a character in Ben Jonson's play, um, which is Every Man in His Humour, which is a comedy. And Thorello in Every Man in His Humour is a jealous husband. And we oh. know that Shakespeare acted in that play of Ben Jonson's. So it's quite an interesting name and then the, just the uh, other interesting like fun thing about the names of Othello and Desdemona is that Othello's name has hell in it and Desdemona's name has demon in it so mm. again these seeds of doom that Tim was talking about are there mm. hovering hovering malignantly and then and Iago is probably from Santiago who was um, a saint who is often depicted on a white horse and would basically go around, is, is often painted as, as trampling on um, the, the morals, if you like, in, in sort of imagery of, huh. of crusades and things. So you can and see him as the enemy of Othello from the beginning, even from the names. And then huh. the, the saint thing comes into the line of Iago saying, I am not what I am too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. In, brings to mind all these questions of identity and who who is actually what they claim to be. I mean, mm. even Desdemona, is she... And Othello, is their story early on? We could ask ourselves if we haven't read it before. Is their story actually true? Are they telling the truth or did they say what was expedient? Mm. And the other thing about Othello is, of all of Shakespeare's martial heroes, like if you compare him to Mark Antony or Coriolanus, he does the least fighting. We hear all about what oh, he's done. Interesting. And I can I totally get why Iago is is really fed up with all of Othello's boasting. Says, you know, he's always going on, he's horribly stuffed with epithets of war. And he is. And mm. we never actually see him in action. We only hear the things that he's done. Even Hamlet gets a sword fight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he wins. <laughs> hey, uh, Tim, final thoughts? No final thoughts. Sarah Jane, anything else? Oh, I'm sure there's lots more, but we're probably out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Jane, you're going to be here for all of Othello, correct? I hope so, if you'll good. have me. That's Please. the plan. Yeah. She, no, I said she was a fill-in. I was joking. She's not really just filling in for like one episode. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed. I just didn't want to presume. It wasn't yeah, a backhanded compliment. It was a natural compliment. I don't, yeah, I've really, really enjoyed our chat. I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. It's gone very quickly. That's but, how these feel. When they go well, yeah. it just dips by. <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being here sarah jane thanks to everyone who has been listening um if you want to join the conversation as i said please do do join it online um send your questions in we'll try to cover them when we can and of course at the end we'll do an episode for each act and then at the end we'll do a q a episode where we will try to uh, answer your questions and cover anything that we didn't get to uh, during each of the episodes uh next week as uh, as is obvious we will talk about act two not book three or whatever nonsense I said. Um, <laughs> I'll be reading that and uh, enjoy that. I did want to ask each of you one question before we go. So Tim, you mentioned the movie. Are there any other ways that either of you would recommend experiencing this play besides just reading it? I know sometimes when people read Shakespeare, you know, just reading it in your head makes it difficult sometimes to get the full experience. So there's reading it out loud, but are there any audiobooks or other versions of this play or, or maybe performances that are on YouTube or something that either of you have encountered that, ha that have helped bring this play alive for you? Ooh, Tim, you go, I'll think about it. <laughs> there's a, I, I think for a first time, how do I say this? I think the Lawrence Fishburne 
as Othello, the version that was made in the 90s. I think it's an excellent, excellent film. It's just, it's a film. It's cut, and the language is cut so much that probably a lot of that we'll talk about on the podcast um, might be text that doesn't actually make it into the movie. But as a movie, I think it's wonderful. I know on, on YouTube, there's a free version of a Globe production starring Tim McInerney as Iago, which, okay, just by the way, I was watching it and I thought, who is that Iago? I've seen that Iago before. Who is that actor? And I kind of backtraced him to, he's one of the characters in, I'm sure you guys have seen Black Adder. Did you guys watch Black <laughs> <Really>? Adder? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Did you know they're bringing that back? What's, they are? Yeah. That makes me nervous because Same. I don't know how you improve yeah. on perfect. I don't know how you improve on perfect and Black Adder is perfect. But I it was ended, it. and it was ended, wasn't it? They, they went over the top and that was the end. Yeah. I, I, but I, I don't know how they're doing it, but you know, Rowan Atkinson, I guess, is involved in bringing it back. Okay. So. I'm going I'm to try to remain hopeful. Anyway, that version <laughs> in the globe is, it's hard for me, it was hard for me to get into because the placement of the cameras and everything else Mm. Um, but it's free and I think it's uncut. So that might also be, especially someone who wants to follow along in the podcast, that might be a good, easy place to start. Otherwise pay a few bucks for the audiobook and don't buy, what are the, what are the free versions that you can get on iTunes? Um, the LibriVox ones. Yeah. Don't buy a LibriVox or don't download the LibriVox. So Tim's got strong feelings about LibriVox. We'll cover that. You gotta have actors. You gotta have real. You gotta <laughs> yeah. have actors that know, know. what I'm they're doing. Gotta have actors that know what they're doing. Sarah Jane, speaking of knowing what they're doing, what about you? Do you have any um, other resources that you recommend to people? And you have mentioned a couple essays. So if you have any uh, essay or book recommendations that can help people dive into this play a little more deeply, um, even ones that might help with teaching it, that would be. Oh yeah, sure. Great as well. So. Um, I'm yeah, I'm with Tim. I think looking at uh, at the Globe website is a great place to start because even if you can't see a production, there are usually um, photographs of productions that you can show your children or your students. Um, the Royal Shakespeare Company is also brilliant, and um, for teachers in schools, their school can get a subscription to the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then you can watch these these excellent films of live productions. Mm -hmm. which are specially put online for school teachers to use in class. And I use that quite a lot. I think they're really brilliant. Um, I'd also say look at the British Library website. So you won't get performative um, resources, but it's really interesting to see things like um, photographs from the time. Uh, you can look at the quartos. You can look at mm. um, all kinds of contemporary documents and things, which mm. just, again, help to bring the text to life. Um, there's the G. Wilson Knight essay that we mentioned. There are also two great lectures online. Um, one is by Marjorie Garber from Harvard University, and the other is by Emma Smith from Oxford University, and they're very easy to access as well. You know, I went through college as an English major, studied tons of Shakespeare, even studied multiple courses on Shakespeare and film, made a short film of The Winter's Tale and never knew that I could get a subscription to those performances of, from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And now I feel gypped like my professors took a lot of joy away from me. It's a very new thing, so oh, I don't... well, okay. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> I won't blame them then. But no. David, David, maybe we could lead the next episode of this podcast with some background on you made a film of The Winter's Tale? <laughs> well, not the whole thing, but yeah, I made some winners. But still, yeah, um, yeah. That was Sarah fun. Jane, let's probe him yeah. on that when we, yeah. you know next episode and get a YouTube link. <laughs> yeah, get the I YouTube wonder, link exactly. Wonder, oh man, I, I am. That's terrifying. Um, <laughs> you, we did the um, we did part of the you know how Shakespeare. That's the play that has the one like stage direction. Exit, exit pursued, pursued by a bear. By a bear. <laughs> yeah, we we yeah. did a whole um, thing where we incorporated the pursuit by bear into it. So that was really fun for a student film. That was challenging, <laughs> but but you know when you're doing the Winter's Tale, you know go big or go home. I guess right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, all right. Well, thanks to you both so much. Um, I look forward to uh, our ongoing conversations in this play. It's been a long time since I've read it, so it's been it's been fun. And um, mm -hmm. thanks for your insights and your time to both of you. 
Thank you, David. Nice to meet you, Sarah Jane. Yes, you too. For Tim McIntosh and for Sarah Jane Bentley, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.